We are still in our series on the prodigal son, and uh, today I want to focus in on one simple but difficult concept. It is simply the word submit. Now, you won't read the word submit or surrender in the story of the prodigal son, but it is a principle that undergirds everything else in the story. A few times in my life, I've had surgery, and there are two things that are needed when you have surgery. Number one is that you need a, an efficient and skilled medical team. You need a good surgeon, you need a good anesthesiologist. The second thing is you need complete surrender. There is a, if you've ever had surgery, then you know that, that that split second, that moment before you pass into darkness and oblivion, that there is this kind of a gasp where you think, oh, I have absolutely no control. My life is in the hands of these people. I don't know of another experience in this life that brings us to the reality of, of total surrender, quite like that moment right before the anesthetic takes hold. Submission is a concept that we don't like. We try to avoid it. It sounds weak. It sounds passive. It's a word that depicts the side that has just been defeated in a battle. It's the word that describes this concept of surrender is a word that describes the team that lost. For a culture that has prided itself on pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, the whole concept of submission is countercultural. But genuine submission defies that stereotype. Let me give you an example. When Mother Teresa was alive and serving in Calcutta, uh, she was um, admired all around the world. And you say, why? Well, hers was not an outward beauty, nor did she have an extraordinary IQ. She was not a woman of means. She didn't crave or relish the limelight, and yet there are few who garnered more respect or wielded more influence than she did in her lifetime. I think the key to her effectiveness was submissiveness. She was submissive to what she believed was her calling from God, and she was submissive to the needs of hurting people all around her. Consequently, she was anything but weak or powerless. Here, then, is the irony of this principle of submission. Submission is a voluntary and willful act of yielding to the power and the authority of another who cares about us, and that results in strength and freedom. When the prodigal son came to his senses and left the pigs behind and headed home to once again submit to his father's authority, everything changed. When he left home at the beginning of the story, it was with an attitude of power and control. This is my life. I am going to live it like I want to live it. I'm going to do it my way. When he returned home at the end of the story, however, it was with an altogether different attitude. It was with an attitude of surrender and submission. Do you remember his prepared speech before he got home? I mean, he practiced it over in his mind probably hundreds of times. Father, I, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me a hired hand, and I'll be good with that. That's surrender. That's submission. Now, 
What he got was more than he dared to dream. He was restored, he was strengthened, and he was set free from his past. You see, through submission comes great victory. Now, now don't miss this point. The importance of this attitude cannot be overemphasized. So suppose the prodigal had come home like this. All right, Dad, I might come home. Don't get your hopes built up, but I might come home if these three of my demands are met. Number one, I get my room back. Number two, you pretend like nothing happened and that you're happy to see me home. And number three, I get the biggest party this town has ever seen. Now, most parents would be frosted with an attitude like that. We would be thinking of all the unmitigated gall, the pig-headedness, the arrogance of such an attitude. Don't worry about coming home until your attitude changes, all right, son? That's how we would respond. But here's the irony. When the young man comes home with this attitude of surrender, guess what happened? He got his room back. His father treated him as if he'd never been gone. He was completely restored, and he got the biggest party that town had ever seen. When we demand our way, we get nothing. When we surrender to God, we get everything. You see, God is looking for the same submissive attitude in us as what was found in the prodigal son. Now, we know what the prodigal did to demonstrate his submissive attitude. He said, just make me a hired hand. So the question comes up, all right, I want to surrender my life to God. I want to be submissive to the Lord. Is there some way I can demonstrate that? Is there something we all can do? Is there a one-size-fits-all kind of a thing that God has ordained that says, I surrender, I submit? And there is. And I am so glad God did not leave this to chance. It's a simple thing to do. When we've come to our senses and we realize there's only one that we can trust with our eternal souls, when we've come to the realization that we're sinners in need of a Savior, there is one profound act of surrender. And it says, when you do it, I submit. It's the beautiful act we call baptism. And it's my hope and prayer this morning that if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have never admitted your utter need for Him and your desperate circumstances apart from His forgiveness, if you've never submitted to Him in Christian baptism for whatever the reason that you have used, that today that ends. No more excuses. No more procrastination. Today is the day of surrender. Now let me take you back to the very first time we ever find Christian baptism in the New Testament. Now baptism certainly occurred before this. By the way, that's in Acts chapter 2. If you want to go ahead and turn to that in your Bibles, we want to read from that. But this is the very first time. It's after the very first sermon of the gospel is ever preached by the apostle Peter. But chapter 2 is the first time we find find Christian baptism. Now, there was baptism prior to that. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist was baptizing. Jesus' disciples were baptizing. It was a baptism unto repentance. It was, in other words, if you've repented of your sins, then here is the way you demonstrate that. And John had brought this whole concept in so much so that he was named after it. But that's not Christian baptism because 
Christian baptism is into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and until he died, was buried, and rose again, you, you, you don't have that picture. So here's the passage. And, and Peter has preached this powerfully convicting sermon and comes down to verse 37, and it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, oh, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he warned them and pleaded with them to save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The act of baptism was viewed and practiced with the highest priority in the ancient church, and I would suggest to you this morning that it ought to be of highest importance and practice in your life as well. Let, let, let me just, let me take you back to some thoughts and pictures and images of baptism, see if I can help you understand why this is the picture of submission and surrender. First of all, baptism is beautifully symbolic. Um, I don't, we, we may have somebody here today that's never been here before who's never seen a baptism the way we do it. I've often wondered about somebody maybe who's not even very familiar with, with church and the story of, of Christianity and the sacrifice of Christ. They come in and they see somebody over here in this uh, pool of water and, and that person is baptized and everybody's excited and cheers and they're happy and everybody's happy and you think, what? possible excitement could there be about being dunked in front of a lot of people by somebody else that you don't maybe really know? Well, I get that. I can understand that. When, when you don't understand the beauty behind something, it's easy to scratch your head and say, I don't get this. This is just kind of odd or weird. But once you know the pageantry that's taking place here, it changes your mind dramatically. The original word in the Greek language that we translate baptize means dip, plunge, or immerse. And that symbolism is critical to the beautiful picture of baptism. Paul writes to the church in Rome, and in chapter 6 he says this, We are baptized into his death. We are therefore buried with Christ through baptism, and that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too walk in a newness of life. Now, here's the picture I want you to see. When a person is baptized, they start off standing up in the baptistry, eyes open, ears hearing, everything's good, and then they get ready to go back, and suddenly eyes close. They, they take a breath, and they hold it. As the water surrounds their head, they don't hear. They're no longer vertical. They're horizontal. Their arms are over their chest, and they become the picture of a corpse. Under the water they go. The water closes over them instantaneously and forms a grave, a watery grave, but a grave nonetheless. That person is raised up out of the water, eyes open, ears clear. They begin to move and breathe, and it's as if they have experienced a death, a burial, and now a resurrection, and suddenly this odd or unusual pageantry takes on new meaning when you realize that every time someone is baptized, they retell the story of the moment in history when Jesus Christ paid for our sins and guaranteed our own resurrection. Now it's not something unusual. It is something profound. 
Baptism is also incredibly significant. It's not just beautifully symbolic, and it is, but it's also incredibly significant. It happens once in our spiritual journey. It's not a regular occurrence like we take the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis or serving Christ throughout the week or reading His Word and studying and praying or, or serving in the community. All those things happen all the time, but, but baptism, it, it's like staking a post or a pillar in the ground at the beginning of the journey and saying, that is when my spiritual trip with Jesus Christ began. It is significant in that it is our response to His grace. We are saved by the grace of God. It is a gift. If you believe that you're so good that God can't help but save you, you've got problems, let me tell you. What we receive in the gift of everlasting life is just that, a gift. None of us deserve it. God did not owe it to us. He initiated the process. We did not. Therefore, God can set the guidelines any way he wants. He is the purchaser of our salvation. He is the initiator of our salvation. And it is God who then says, my gift is free. Here's how to accept it. And we accept it and we embrace it through faith and with a repentant spirit and attitude, with a profession that we believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then we surrender in the act of baptism. When Peter's audience said, what can we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. Obviously, they were already at a point of faith, and they followed up with this incredible, significant act. Now, when somebody gives you a gift, there are appropriate things to do. Uh, it, it's appropriate to reach out and, and receive the gift. It's appropriate to say, thank you for the gift. This was really nice. Uh, it, it may follow up. You may do something else uh, in your life. But there is a, there's an appropriate way to receive a free gift and God has given us those instructions. Let me see if I can illustrate this way. By the way, several of you have asked, have I heard from Belgium and, the, and whether the Chrysler made it? Got an email this week from the gentleman in Belgium who bought the 48 Chrysler. It arrived, all intact, coating of dust on it, but everything else was really good, and he was really excited, and I'm really thankful. Now, with that in mind, let, let me illustrate it this way. Suppose that my new friend in Belgium decides that he's going to leave me the Chrysler in his will. All right? When he dies, I get it back. All right? It, I'm just pretending. It's just a pretend. All right? Just stay with me here. Okay. <clears throat> so I get a call from a, an, an attorney in Indianapolis, and the attorney says, uh, the car is back. It's been shipped back. You are listed in the will. The car is yours again. No payment. It's a gift from the testator of the will. And here's what you need to do. You need to be at my office. I, my office is on the circle there in Indianapolis. And you need to be there on May the 5th. And you need to come at 2 o'clock. And if you're there, I'll give you the title and I'll give you the keys. And it's, it's yours. Now, where do you think I'm going to be at 2 o'clock on May the 5th? I'm going to be there May the 4th, all right, parked out in front. Just I don't want to miss this. This is once in a lifetime. So at 2 o'clock, he gives me the title, gives me the keys. I get in the car. I start it up. I start driving home, and I pat myself on the back and say, didn't I do a wonderful job of earning this car? And you say, what? You didn't earn a thing. The man left it to you in his will. You just followed the instructions on how to receive the free gift. See how God worked it? He just says, here's the way that you picture surrender to me. 
It is significant in that it is our identification with that most critical moment in history as we've talked about his death, burial, and resurrection. You know, there's, there's an interesting thing that happens. We focused on the resurrection part, but let me remind you, when, when you go into the waters of baptism, whether it's here in the baptistry or it's at a pond or a lake or a stream or wherever, there is another picture that happens, and that is you die. Now, you don't physically die, but you die to the power and the dominance of sin in your life. When you go down into the water, you leave the old person there. Somebody said it's the only way you can kill your old man and get away with it, and it's true. You kill the old person of sin. The old man inside of me is supposed to die, and you leave that buried there. How did you think of your high school principal? Did it unnerve you, the thought of being called to the principal's office? Boy, it did me when I was a kid. You know, the last thing you want to do is be called into the principal's office for something that went wrong. I mean, I was told by eyewitness accounts that there was a big paddle in the principal's desk. I never wanted to see that paddle. And when the principal happened to be standing out in the hallway, when you're walking through the hallway, what'd you do? Did you look at him and smile, or did you just kind of walk on past? Maybe scoot over to the far side of the, of the hallway just because you, and, and slow down. You didn't do anything out of line because that was the principal. Now, do you remember the first time you saw your principal again after you graduated from high school? Was your first moment like, there's the principal? And then you remember, hey, I've got a diploma. I'm graduated from there. He doesn't have any more power over me. And maybe you went up and shook his hand or shook her hand or talked to them or something. It was altogether a different feel because the principal wasn't dead and you weren't dead, but his authority over you was dead. And when we are buried with Christ in baptism, the dominion and the authority of sin in our life is now dead and buried. The Apostle Paul says it like this. We are crucified with him. We die to the things of this world so that his life may fill us anew. Well, baptism is significant in that it is a cleansing. John, came, John the Baptist came um, baptizing unto repentance. We talked a little bit about that. What, what you may not realize is that John got his nickname, John the Baptizer, because what he did was so unique. Now, here's what you need to understand. In Jewish culture, there were all kinds of cleansing ceremonies. People knew what it was like to, to go down and wash, maybe dip three times or dip some number of times or special ways to wash their hands, but they would do it themselves. When John came along, he said, no, no, you can't do this by yourself. I have to baptize you because it was a way of showing that we are powerless to affect our own spiritual outcome. In other words, folks, I can't do a thing to get rid of the sin in my life. I can't pay the price. I can't get rid of my sin. I can only submit my life to Jesus Christ who forgives my sin. That's why you can't baptize yourself. Doesn't work because you're still in control. Baptism is when you relinquish control to somebody else and you say, Lord, I am totally surrendering myself to you. It is this marvelous picture. I cannot remove my own sin, but you can. I can do nothing. Can I tell you this? Baptism is the most passive thing you will ever do in your Christian walk. Because there's nothing you do but surrender to it. Which brings me to this whole point that baptism is willful surrender. 
Uh, Rob Muncy, who's sitting right down here, told me oh, a couple years ago that when he was preaching one time, he had a couple in the church where he was preaching, uh, and, and the subject of baptism came up, and the man came up to him and said something like this. He said, I will never do that. It is too humiliating. Exactly. That's the whole point. It's a humbling experience, because it, if, it's, if you think it's too humbling, then, then, then it's not surrender. Perhaps it's because of baptism's importance that Satan makes it a battleground. He knows that as an expression of surrender and submission, it is an act he desperately wants us to avoid. Now, can a physical act like baptism have a spiritual impact? I certainly hope so. The physical death of Christ certainly had an impact on my sins. The physical resurrection of Christ certainly had an impact on the promise of my own resurrection. And when I eat the Lord's Supper on a Sunday morning, I actually eat a piece of bread, and I actually drink a cup of juice, just like you do, and yet it is a spiritual moment of worship. Do not think that baptism is some meritorious work or deed. As we've mentioned, it's completely passive. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says we are united with Christ in baptism. It literally means grown together like a branch that is grafted into a tree. I heard about a Christian tourist who was visiting the Holy Land for the first time. When the tour group reached the traditional site of Calvary, uh, Golgotha, the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified, uh, as they think it probably was the place, the tour guide asked the group, he says, have, have any of you been here before? And one man in the crowd raised his hand and said, oh, really, when were you here? And he said, about 2,000 years ago. You, you see... We were there when he was crucified because it was our sins for which he died. Salvation is not found in an act of or the water of baptism. It's not like the deed itself alone is, is, can, can accomplish anything. It's not like the water scrubs your soul clean. It's not like if they're baptized, they'll be sanitized kind of approach. Devoid of faith and repentance, it's nothing more than getting wet. It is the once and for all sacrifice of Christ and the shedding of his blood that makes possible the forgiveness of our sins. However, it is the one-time act of baptism where we identify with that very event. The context of the book of Acts certainly teaches that baptism always followed on the heels of faith. Now, why is baptism so hard for us? Well, it's because we're always asking the wrong questions. Well, is, is baptism necessary? Or uh, when is a person actually saved? What moment? Or what if a person's stuck in a desert and there's no water? What do they do in a case like that? Those are not the questions to ask. The question to ask is, when? When can I do this? Like the Ethiopian riding with Philip in the chariot, when they came to the water, the Ethiopian said, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? And Philip said, you can, if you believe. And he said, I believe. So your question this morning is when? My answer is now. Should I be baptized into Christ? Absolutely. Yes. Now. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you want to follow him with all of your heart and surrender your life to him and you haven't been baptized for whatever the reason, then there's no time like the present. I'm serious, folks. Now is the time. Some of you in this place have been putting it off for a long time. Why would you put it off any longer? 
There is no reason unless you capitulate to the temptation to keep procrastinating. That's just what Satan wants you to do. My grandparents used to tell stories of when in the wintertime they would break the ice on the farm ponds to baptize somebody in the winter. That's surrender, let me tell you. I want you to know the water over here is warm, all right? We keep it warm all the time. And of course, there are the proverbial stories of the person who doesn't quite get it done just right. Remember the story of the preacher who was so nervous at his first baptism. He had all the pieces right. He just kind of got them out of order. He put the person down into the water, and then he said, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son. And that's a little scary. We know how it goes. We got the right order. That's not going to happen here. And I could talk for a long time. We could go on for a couple more sermons about the theology of all of this, how it is a promise or a pledge before God, and it is, or how being baptized into Christ, as Paul wrote, is like putting on Christ, which is the very picture out of the prodigal son where the father takes this nice, clean, beautiful robe and puts it on the tattered rags of the prodigal son. It's God putting his robe of righteousness over our filthy rags in this life. Uh, very least, it's, it's a command. Uh, in the Great Commission, Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is a command. If, if you can't get any place else in it, it is at least commanded of us. Most often, the act of baptism stands out as one of the most memorable moments of your life. I, I really do, and I'm, I'm sincere about this. I remember it as if it were yesterday for me. It was April the 2nd, 1967. I was 12 years old. The whole image is still locked in my mind. I look back to that moment as the beginning of, one, of the greatest journey of my life. I, I, I'm here to tell you, it, it gives you that kind of a moment. It's one of those deeply spiritual experiences in life of fully committing and surrendering ourselves to him. One might even call it the believer's marriage ceremony. You see this ring on my finger? It's worn with the passing of time. It's got a couple dents in it. Uh, some of the sheen has faded off of it. There's a few places where it looks like it's been scarred or scraped. But I remember the moment when that was placed on my finger for the first time. June the 4th, 1977. That ring represents a pledge that Elsie and I made to one another. We married once, a declaration that the two of us were becoming one, united together. And that ring stays on my finger through the up times and the down times of life. And when you are baptized into Christ Jesus, it's like you are now one with him. It's like your ring around your finger. It's basically saying, whenever I think of my baptism, I am reminded that he is with me through the up times and the down times of my life. Refusing to be baptized is akin to refusing to wear your wedding ring. Bottom line. Here's the bottom line. If this is all I knew, it'd be enough. Jesus was baptized. John the baptizer tried to talk him out of it. He said, oh, no, no, no. You, you baptize me. And Jesus said, no, no, John. You baptize me because it's the right thing to do. If the perfect sinless Son of God over John's objections could say it's the right thing to do, 
then what does it say about us when Jesus submitted to something he didn't need and we refuse to do something that we really do need? It is the right thing to do.